0: I do lots of sermon series, message series, like a lot of pastors do. Uh, but this is going to be a kind of a one-topic uh, message this morning. And the the point of this message this morning is uh, an encouragement to you as the church, to us as the church, um, on what it means to live in stability as a church, as the Christian church. How do we how do we have stability? How do we have a, a firm foundation? Underneath us, and how, what does that mean when it comes to uh, the people that attend church, the people that serve in church and the leaders of the church? And then ultimately, what does that mean for how we move forward as a church, uh, the growth of the church, etc? So I found this cool little ilu- il- illustration. I'm not sure where this is. Anyone you know? No. Uh, so I want to start in Isaiah chapter 33. I found this very encouraging. To read, it says, The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will save us. This is similar to uh, many passages that we can see throughout Scripture that affirms to us who is ultimately in charge. It affirms who is our ultimate Savior, but the the key word I want you to see is stability. right? The stability of your times, the stability of our times. Uh, The Apostle Paul uh, wrote about lots of things by the inspiration of God. Uh, and he often wrote to people in a real-world context within the community of God and the church of God. And I like this illustration. The, the funny thing about this illustration is he, he has a little book neck, at the front of the desk that probably uh, came a little later in history. I don't know that he had that book binding back then, but uh, it's kind of cool. So this is his letter to the Corinthians I'm going to mention here. He speaks about, I, in my interpretation, stability. But it's within the context of where is our stability, where is our foundation. And the very specific context that he's speaking about is how we view our leaders in the church. Okay? So, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 starts in verse 4. He says, When one says, I follow Paul himself, another says, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? When, what then is Apollos? He asks, what is Paul? We are servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. One of the many controversies or problems in the church at Corinth is they were being very human-focused. They were, they were, and we talked about envy a few weeks ago. There was lots of envy and strife going on and competition. Well, I follow Paul, I follow Peter, I follow Apollos. And he's saying, Look, yeah, human leaders are important, but you're missing the foundation here. He says, Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So, again, the immediate issue at hand here is how do we view our church How do we view our leaders in the church, our human leaders? He's talking about the the leaders in such a way that they're they're certainly important. You can't have community without more than one person. (laughs) And the community of God isn't just God and the Godhead. It's God and human beings in the church, in the community of God. And it's established in the New Testament, but also the Old, that there are leaders in the church. But how do we view our leaders? Is Is our focus... Uh, place too much on our leaders, where, where we, we are devoted to them above God, whether we, uh, you know, sometimes worship them, where our stability ultimately is de- dependent on a human being as opposed to dependent on Christ. Christ should be the foundation, is what I think he's saying here. So what does it mean to have a firm foundation? These are the fr- uh, phrase you hear in hymns and and that kind of thing, and we talk about it from time to time. And so you will probably not find this illustration to be a new one. But here is a a skyscraper in Los Angeles, the the Wilshire Grand Center. And in my reading, this is a pretty new skyscraper. This was built around five years ago, the construction began. And it is about 1,100 feet tall, and it is the tallest tower or skyscraper west of the Mississippi. So it's a pretty tall building. Now, again, you've heard this maybe in church you know, or maybe uh, we have some architects in the room or whatever. The taller the building goes, the deeper the foundation needs to be, the bigger the foundation needs to be. The, when, they, when they laid the foundation for the Wilshire Grand Center in 2014, they actually, uh, whatever it is, they received the uh, Guinness World Record for the continuous pouring of concrete over a certain period of time, I believe in 24 hours. They did it in 18 hours uh, over 2100 truckloads of concrete uh, around 82 million pounds i believe of concrete were laid it was the con- the, the foundation was at least 18 uh, feet thick i believe and so so concrete and steel became this humongous foundation which in proportion to this you know more thin skyscraper you would think would be outrageous but you needed that level of foundation to support the heights that the, foundation, that the tower went to. And this is a, a photo of, of the construction workers. The tower has been finished, and you saw the needle at the top, and they're standing on top of the needle. A little crazy, but maybe they had some inside information, right? They knew how strong the foundation was, and they felt a little bit more confident standing on top of the tower. <laughs> so we all need a firm foundation, and certainly you hopefully see the the, the analogy that the higher we rise in our building, the firmer our foundation needs to be. So I want to translate that. We're talking about foundation, we're talking about stability, and the idea of a rock. A rock, we saw that in Paul. So I want to speak about a rock that is maybe a little bit different than maybe you've heard, I don't know, but the rock of a heavenly confession. And so we, we see in Matthew 16, and I believe it's in the other synoptic gospels, the story of Jesus where he, he kind of goes on retreat with his apostles, as his, his disciples. They go up to Caesarea Philippi, north of Israel, kind of take a break from things. And so they're, they're, they're chilling out, they're hanging out, and he, and he asks them a question, kind of a poll. So how am I doing? How, who do people think that I am? Jesus asked, who the, uh, asked his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? Referring to himself. And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And the consistency with this list is really people that were leading up to the Messiah. So, so they weren't really saying that Jesus was the Messiah. They were kind of saying, well, maybe he's someone that was leading up to the Messiah. Messiah the Christ um, and there are different reasons for this. And so he asks his disciples themselves, he says, well who do you say that I am? And then Simon Peter who was often the spokesman for the apostles replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now we don't know exactly the chronology of the ministry and when Peter made this declaration but it was a pretty important confession. Jesus answers Peter and he says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. And his name was Simon Peter. Bar-Jonah means son of Jonah, son of John. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Upon this rock I will build my church. So this is Matthew 16:18, and it's a, a, a bit of a controversial verse in Christian history, uh, mostly between Protestants and Catholics. Uh, the, the Catholics have used this verse as their, uh, their way of saying that Peter was the first pope, and there was a line of succession that proves that the Roman Catholic Church is the only true church. And so Protestants say, that's not true. <laughs> and so they don't like this verse. And, so, and you will see some Protestants will try to reinterpret the meaning of the verse. I don't know that you have to do that. I'm not someone that believes the Roman Catholic Church is, is the only true church. But I can, I can look at this on, at face value and say that Je- Jesus can say what he's saying and it's okay. All right, so what is he saying? On You are Peter, which means rock, so it's a bit of a play on words. He says, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The irony is if you've ever read Peter's story, have you've heard from me before, Peter was not a rock, certainly in the Gospels. He was, he was a mess. He had all sorts of inconsistencies in his life. He sinned like we all do, you know. He wasn't our, our image of somebody who would be a foundational pillar of God's future church. And the best example of this <laughs> is what happens right after this, we believe, in Matthew 16. Right after this, it seems to be that Jesus says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things, from the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed on the third day Uh, be raised this was not the Messiah (laughs) that most human beings were expecting they were expecting a conquering Messiah they weren't expecting a Messiah that was conquered that was killed and so he uh, awards Peter for calling him the Messiah for calling him the Christ but right after that Peter qualifies this he doesn't like this version of the Messiah says Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned to him and said to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, <laughs> you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So, back to the Matthew 16:18, You are Peter, on this rock I will build my church. Is this speaking to what? Is this speaking to Peter's character, to Peter's stability, or maybe something else? Walter Kaiser makes this statement, for which I agree, with which I agree. Peter personally might not be thought to be, uh, Peter might be, thought to be un, un, too unstable to provide such a foundation. But it is not Peter for what he is in himself, but Peter, the confessor of Jesus, who provides it. In that kind of building, every other confessor of Jesus finds a place, you and me. What matters is not the stature of the confessor, but the truth of the confession. So on this rock, I will build my church. Was the rock Jesus? Well, no, because he's pointing to Peter, I think, at this point. So if it was Peter, how could Peter be the rock? Was it a future uh, you know, prophecy of Peter? Perhaps, but I think within the context, especially when you see it in Matthew 16, I think the rock that he's talking about is the confession. Right Upon this rock, what is the rock? The rock is Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah that came from the Heavenly Father. Where he wasn't a rock right afterwards was thinking in the same lines along the way every other man thought, which was the, that the Messiah wouldn't have to suffer. What was the rock? The rock, in this context, was the connection that Jesus had to Peter through his faith and his confession in him as Messiah. That is what Jesus was affirming. He said, you've you, you got it, right? You just called me the Messiah. God must have told you this. On this rock, I will build my church. That's what he was doing. Now, and so, be, and then we can tie it in, and eventually that would lead to who Peter was. But in the meantime, he was this basket case of instability, <clears throat> even in, in his ministry. But when Jesus went to the cross, right, as he was foretelling here, when he was raised from the dead, when he recommissioned Peter, when he ascended back to heaven, when the Holy Spirit came, Peter started to become what this promise was but the promise came about not having anything to do with the character of Peter the ability of Peter as a person but because of his faith because of his confession in Jesus as the Messiah and then eventually that confession was aligned with the correct vision of what a Messiah in God is in this case a Messiah who suffers a Messiah who God raises from the dead a Messiah who redeems us from our sins And so, the Peter we see before changes on the day of Pentecost. He stands up and gives this amazing sermon that brings 3,000 people to the faith. Peter starts to become a little bit more like this rock. However, (laughs) he never loses sight of where his foundation is. Shortly after this, in in chapter 3 of Acts, he heals a man at the temple gate. And people are amazed by this. And he says in Acts 3.12, Why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made this man walk? He knows where the power came from. It wasn't, wasn't his holiness or his power, right? So later he, he brings us back up to the leadership and he says in chapter 4, By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified... Whom God raised from the dead, this Messiah, by him this man is standing before you well. How did this happen? It wasn't my foundation. It wasn't my stability. It was my faith in this Messiah, this crucified and risen Messiah. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, the foundation. And so there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Kind of a basic gospel message. But the gospel message was, if I'm standing here doing anything for God, it ain't because of me. It's because of the finished work of this Jesus Christ. I am standing on the foundation, this cornerstone of the crucified and resurrected Christ. So he understood that he was there to do things for God, to advance God's kingdom, but he knew that he wasn't the foundation. Christ was the foundation. (coughs) Kaiser goes on and he says, For where Jesus is confessed as the Messiah, as the Christ, the Son of God, there the church exists. It is in the one who is thus confessed, and not in any durable quality of its own that the church's security and survival rest. Where's our stability? It's in Christ. It's not in us. Are we an important part of the picture? Absolutely. But it's ultimately in Christ. That's what makes us the church, the community of God. That's what is our foundation. That is what we need to grow further into the highest heights of the church of God. Christ's church is resilient. Christianity itself is resilient. There are all sorts of reasons why Christianity should have died out. Right? There was all sorts of opposition in the beginning while Jesus was around. Uh, many people, unbelievers, will say that the founder of the faith died. <laughs> That's a reason for the faith to die out. The, 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 the leaders that followed him, mostly <laughs> the apostles, died. That should have killed the faith. All along, over 2,000 years, there have been times over and over and over where Christianity should have died out. But every time Christianity was pushed back by something, it prevailed. It was resilient, it, pushed, it, it, it multiplied <laughs> even further. It's, it's, if you talk about convincing someone of, of the truth of Christianity, that's a great example. <laughs> Christianity hadn't gone away, it's grown. And we live in a time today where we, we have cultural reasons to believe that Christianity is constantly being pushed back by people who don't believe in Scripture and in Christ. And that's true, right? But does that mean that Christianity is dead? Some of you older people remember the Time magazine article. I was two years old, probably, uh, in the late 60s that said God is dead. <laughs> God's not dead. No matter what the, the world says, the Christian church is resilient. But another way to see this is the Christian, Christian church should have died because of the fallibility of those in the church, <laughs> right? There's all sorts of reasons we could say why Christianity should have died out because all sorts of people have abused the faith, all sorts of people in the church, all, of, all people in the church are sinners. <laughs> and so Christianity should have died out, but it hasn't. It hasn't. Why? On this rock I will build my church and, on the gates, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The phrase the gates of hell most likely meet, which should be translated something like the power of death. Why do I say that? Our, our mindset when we hear the English word hell is, is the fire and brimstone, the realm of the devil. But the, the word is Hades which most likely would have been parallel to the Jewish mindset to the word Sheol which in the Old Testament didn't mean this fiery place. It meant the realm of the dead. And so the phraseology probably meant the power of death shall not prevail against it. The power of death. And you can study that if you like. The scholar Donald Hagner says, The church, as God's eschatological community, will never die or come to an end. This, despite... Despite the eventual martyrdom death of the apostles, and even more imminently, the death of its founder. If the church escapes destruction despite the death of its leadership, so too will it escape anything that the enemy might bring upon it. And so there's different ways to see this. But ultimately what we see is human beings, (laughs) even the death of human beings, can't stop the church. Where does our ultimate stability lie? It's in the risen Christ. It's in the promise of resurrection. It's in the finished work that Jesus accomplished on the cross. That's what sustains us as a church. That is what will keep us going as a church. Not me, not you. We're important. We're absolutely a part of things. But it is God who is our foundation. God who gives the growth. Daniel chapter 2, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed nor shall uh, the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break into pieces all those kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. God's church, God's kingdom. So, where do we, we're, we're back to square one. Because of that, how do we see ourselves? How do we see the church? Certainly, we are vital. Certainly God needs the church because the church is God's community and we're part of things, right? We are God's agents here on earth. But the foundation for the church doesn't lie in you, doesn't lie in me. It lies in Christ himself. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, "You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. It doesn't diminish us to say we are nothing in comparison to Christ. Paul is just saying that as vital as we are, we ain't the foundation. We are a part of the building, but we're not this. And that's where our focus always needs to lie. And so he says, he concludes in chapter 3, Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, which is Peter, or the world or or life or death, or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. And so finally, I'll repeat (laughs) Paul says, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today and we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for the truths that can be imparted into our lives to remind us of your grace and your love and how we should always retrain our focus away from the things of men to your integrity, your love, your gift of sacrifice in sending your Son. Lord, I ask that we always understand where our foundation lies, that we can see ourselves in more stable terms and understand the future that lies ahead of us not because of the strength or the weakness of our human leaders but because You have a vision and a purpose for our community and our church that will go on into eternity. And so Lord, I ask that this message is understood and taken to heart as we go forward this morning in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.